Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. I'm very excited to have tonight's guest. Her name is Sarah Robin. And before I introduce you to her, I'm going to introduce my book, which is A Gift from Adversity, the same title as the podcast. A Gift from Adversity was published 2020 and the subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And after I published my book, a lot of people came to tell me their adversities. And I felt compelled to create a platform where people can speak about the adversity. But not only that, tools to overcome and a gift that came from it. And it's been wonderful having guests from all over the world and I cannot thank my guests enough including tonight's guest to be brave and to speak out about the adversity and challenges and my goal really is to normalize this conversation and help together for how to overcome these challenges and obstacles we have and normalize the conversation about mental health and how can we navigate this life? So let's introduce our guest. Hi, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on A Gift from Adversity tonight. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So can you please tell our audience who you are and what you do? And if you have any website or social media that people can follow. Yeah, um, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I work as an independent filmmaker. I also work as a commercial director. Um, I'm from Germany, but haven't been there in a hot second. I'm based in Boston these days. And you can find me, I'm not, I'm kind of social media averse, but you can find me on Instagram under Sarah X Robin. Um, and my website is the same, sarahxrobin.com. So I am so, so impressed with your uh, DP, like videography skills and your vision. And then it is so beautiful. Before we go into our main topic about the adversity, will you tell us a little bit how you got interested in becoming a videographer? Yeah, um, I became interested in becoming a filmmaker, um, which is kind of the term I use now. I mean, it's, it's all interchangeable. I definitely spent a good amount of time putting myself out there as a videographer um, before I got more into DP and directing work and producing. Um, I got interested after I finished my degree in politics and philosophy, and I was kind of at a loss. I had a lot to talk about and hadn't quite figured out how to do it. Um, because a lot of the work I saw in academia seemed to be very siloed, um, you know, designed for a few experts to understand, but not really to reach the public. And um, I was a bit jaded about politics at that point already. And I was looking for an outlet and for a way to reach people and communicate with people. And um, and I thought back and what had in influenced me, and that was documentaries and even fiction films um, had built a lot of my understanding of morality and uh, influenced my imagination. and and all that um so i decided to give it a go i just started working on some film sets and i was instantly in love with it so i kind of came into it from that angle more so than being a movie buff i was more of a bookworm growing up um but always loved storytelling and always 
like technical things, creative things. So film was kind of nicely at the intersection of all that, which I really like how complicated it is. You need to be good at a lot of things. And that was uh, just from a kind of practical standpoint, also very intriguing to me. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And then as an independent film and TV producer as well, I'm so extremely impressed with your work. And I love your angles and shots. And then what kind of camera do you like to use the most? Oh, <laughs> you know, probably an actual film camera, which I still haven't been able to do. I brought, I was brought up on digital when I got into it. Digital had already taken off so much that barely anyone was doing film. Um, I studied at Boston University and they didn't even teach us to do film anymore. And ever since then I've been, because everything I love that I'm really gravitated towards tends to be shot on film. and. Um, I'm now finally for the first time shooting something on film this summer, so I'm really excited for it. Uh, yeah. But I know you mentioned that you use like a black magic and red. And yeah, yeah, I'm a I own a black magic just because it's you know affordable and I really like that camera. Um, it's super just like easy and forgiving and looks good. Um, and you know whenever I can, Ari for me is the way to go. <laughs> awesome. When did you come to America? Uh, in 2013. I've been here for a while now. Wow. That is so cool. I, I'm from Japan originally. And then just a side story. I was an exchange student uh, in Washington mm -hmm. State when I was really young. And then uh, I had a friend from Germany. Uh, she was an exchange student, Julia, and she was a photographer. So mm -hmm. I have a really great memory uh, of her. And um, my son actually is learning German. Uh, German and then so interesting he wants to someday visit the country good on him <laughs> it's a difficult language to learn I think <laughs> yeah yes so thank you so much for the introduction and I really am happy to have met you and connect and before we move on to the topic I just want to emphasize how difficult it is to be a female DP in this filming industry, like we don't have much of the female DP. Um, have you ever had kind of stigma uh, working in this industry being no DP or not really? It's funny that you should ask. Um, so just let me correct this. I mostly work as a director actually, but I also DP, so I do both. Um, and I'd always seen myself as primarily a director um, and the DP thing was some, something I almost fell into a little bit because I shoot my own documentaries and then people saw that and brought me on to more complex things, narrative things, things that require setups and lighting and all that. And I found it, I enjoyed that too. And I learned a lot about directing. So the two really feed into each other. So at this point I do both. Um, and it's funny that you ask because as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, okay, there's two things I could talk about, about adversity and being a woman in this industry is definitely one of those. I decided to go with the other one that's maybe a bit more personal, but uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but definitely I, I do. And I think I was a bit, because I knew that that was a thing going into it. Uh, I was a little uh, unaware how it affected me because I thought, well, I'm aware of this. I'm counteracting a lot of it. Um, I don't think this will happen to me, but it still did. And it does so in very quiet ways sometimes. Um, things like not getting a promotion, people assuming that you're good at certain things and not good at other things and giving you opportunities based on that. For example, my producing career really took off uh, when I was, I spent a couple of years in LA before coming back to Boston in 2020. And uh, I could have easily had, you know, a really cushy producing career out in LA. 
because everyone looks at me, hears me talk, sees what I look like, assumes I'm great at this. And I'm good at it, but I don't love doing it. It was just a work for money job. And I had to push a lot to get directing and DP opportunities. And I literally had to put myself out there, work for almost nothing um, on those things, do films on my own dime and do it again and again and again um, until I eventually was able to switch into that field. Meanwhile, I was surrounded by guys who are much younger, much less experienced than me, but they get these opportunities because they're a dude and they connect, you know, everyone thinks they're good with gear. Um, and so I saw that and a lot of it is very, yeah, unspoken between the lines. And I'm not very good with between the lines things. Um, so it took me a while to realize that that was going on. Because for a while I thought, okay, I'm just not good enough. You know, there's a lot of competition in LA. I'm just not getting opportunities because I'm not good enough. And um, yeah, I it took a few years for me to realize the pattern, right? And um, well, I just say it's it's a thing for sure. When I'm on set, um, and I'm mostly on set with men, I do get questioned, regardless of what their role is. Um, there's assumptions that I don't know what a certain lens does. There are assumptions that I don't understand my lighting, that I don't understand what it takes to set up a certain shot. All all this stuff, and I. So I have to prove myself. And now I'm actually trying to prove myself right off the bat <laughs> when I get on set to like set certain things straight, you know, right away. Yeah. I see. Well, thank you so much for sharing. So let's definitely jump into that first question, which is the adversity part. Yeah. Um, so what you just mentioned is something I've heard of, unfortunately, over and over again in, in this industry. And I know you have a personal uh, adversity that you want to share but let's actually go back to talking about the adversity and being a female DP director role that I have experienced myself as a producer as a leader for the nonprofit that I ran for 12 years as Asian female and I've had so many mean words said to me and just to share it with you and our audience that I was called incredible incredibly hurtful things when I was just trying to direct or correct like you no know, give direction and just some men couldn't take it and then they started to insult me and they started to say really really mean things to me and I think being a female Asian producer I don't direct but you know producer kind of have that kind of bossy nuance to it and then some people like say you're intimidating and then when I'm not trying to intimidate people but I think people wouldn't say that if I was a white man when I say something same thing okay can you not sway or can you move to this way <laughs> just simple direction that some people just can't take it from female and it's sad, but at the same time, it's a reality. And I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I don't know how we can, in our generation, fix this. But in Japan, it's worse. A lot of people, like my generation, like female really never had a voice. My grandma generation, my mom's generation gets worse. And always, you know, the kitchen is female and then... You know, my aunt wasn't my aunt wasn't allowed to go to high school, um, but instead of like you no know, high school kimono making school, so I'm not sure how is it like in Germany and how is it like affecting you being in America, maybe having that cultural background. I'm not sure how it is over there. 
But would you share that with your uh, with our audience a little bit? Yeah, uh, it's actually an interesting question. So I must say, I was brought up by a total feminist. My mom's a badass. So um, she, uh, very early on, we spent some time in Iran when I was very little. My dad worked there, so she she saw a culture where women had no voice or very little voice, even at the time, which was like mid nineties, um, and that really impacted her and and she got pretty radical i think in her feminist views which was good for me um because i definitely was brought up with the sense of like you can do anything and everything you want but it's not going to be easy um there are systems in place that will make this harder for you um and i think in germany which is strange because germany is so forward thinking in a lot of ways but if i compare it to the us i would say there's still a bit more of a traditional women's role in people's minds i curious what the current generation is like. I doubt that it still uh, has such a strong hold as it used to, but um, I would definitely see more women in in the States in powerful roles than, than I would in Germany. And and I know we ever since we had Angela Merkel as a chancellor, the, the international image is very different. But when you live there, uh, there's still a sense of making it to like a leadership role as a woman is difficult. And and part of it is definitely that you're expected to have a family, but you're also a bad mom if you work all the time and you're not spending time with your kids. So whereas I think the U.S. culture, for better or worse, and I think in a lot of ways worse, honestly, but it's more focused on work. So people will, you know, support you in having an amazing career. Um, and so it's maybe a little easier for women to uh, climb the ranks over here. Yes, I would say in America, it's definitely for me easier to live in this country than in Japan. And that's why I became a citizen in 2010. And um, I just feel that if I go back to Japan, I'll be definitely outcast and I'll be definitely misjudged and I would have way so much social pressure mm. of what I'm doing right now in America, being a journalist, musician, a filmmaker, a TV producer. And I also think that sometimes the women are categorized or biased that you should be in the kitchen or you should be serving men and then if you don't have boyfriend or, or husband you're like worthless if you don't have children you're worthless um it's kind of like pressure like un like unsaid pressure yeah. and then it's and that's very pervasive i think that's still the case in the us too it's it's less talked about it's less overt but maybe equally powerful because it's yeah, as you said, it's unsaid and it's between the lines. And also, like, you know, being a single, like, you know, sometimes is a shame in Japan. And then, like, at my age, like, say, you know, why don't you have a boyfriend or a partner or something? But then that was, like, killing me and choking me a lot. And then um, my PCP, like, last September told me, you, you are in America, it's okay to be single. And then you're not going to be unvalued because you're single. And that's very awakening for me, awakening concept for me, because I was brought up with one concept, which is that you serve your man. And then your career does not come first, basically. But then I'm doing completely opposite. I'm a single mom. And then my career is very important to me right now. So, you know, not only being in the filming industry, but running a nonprofit, I face that. And then just being a community leader, I face that. As a journalist, sometimes I do face that. So would you talk a little bit in depth about 
maybe what was in between the line that you noticed that because your female director unsaid pressure or something that maybe some example that you can share with the audience? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think <laughs> there, there's a lot. Um, the <laughs> one of my favorite examples was going on set once. This was for a DP job, and I had a. Uh, this was said, but it's, it's just so it illustrates really well. Um, I was going on set. I was wearing loose, you know, functional clothing. I had a um, Pelican case with gear with me, and um, I roll up to set and talk to the AD, trying to figure out where you know I should go. And he's like, "Oh, are you talent?" <laughs> like do I look like talent to you really um so there are moments like that that just throw you off but I think the more pervasive things are there's a buddy buddy culture amongst guys um they're not really comfortable when a woman is in the mix because they need to be on guard I guess or something it's not the same vibe so oftentimes what happens when the majority of people you work with and on the technical or creative side are guys um, is that they will go hang out with each other and you're not really part of that. Um, and I know that's a lot of women in business talk about that too, because a lot of business decisions get made in those informal hangouts, right? And I find in film, it's similar. Like you get jobs a lot because somebody likes you. Um, you want to think you get jobs a lot because you're good at something and that does factor into it. You know, you shouldn't be bad at it, but a lot of times as you get jobs because someone likes you. And if you don't get to have these buddy buddy moments, your chances of, you know, your network, your chances of getting jobs thrown your way are just much slimmer. Um, and I found I had to work for it a lot more. I have to actively reach out to people, make sure they, you know, have me on top of their mind and um, try to set up one-on-one -on -one coffee sort of situations where it's not so much of the buddy culture. It's just a bit more of a work meeting, but it always feels a bit more formal than what the guys have going on. Um, and I think it creates a certain distance, which I don't personally mind, but it has definitely slowed down business relationships, I would say. Yeah. Well, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And then like I hear you about, you know, Oh, are you a talent or your DB? And then sometimes, you know, I do both sides. I, I'm like talent, and then the producer, are like, you no, know, you know, it's case by case. Yeah. So, in a way, like I think, well, it's a compliment. You're beautiful, obviously, and um, you know, sometimes they assume that you are not the director or DP because you're female and you're beautiful, and I think just bias because there are so many male DP, male director, and not so many director and DP, like a female. But I I do have to credit one of the production, a big million dollar production that behind the monitor, it was all women. And I was so empowered, exactly producer, producer, DP, all women. Yeah. Which production was it? Can you say, or is it still? No, I can't say. Yeah, yeah, but anyways, off the record, I'll, I'll tell you. But anyways, um, so what's the other adversity that you want? <laughs> I know, yeah. now we're throwing a lot at people here. Um, the other one is that I self-diagnosed with autism about a year and a half ago. Um, and this came out of a bit of soul searching during the pandemic, because um, I you know, noticed some patterns that were getting worse. Um, 
most notable was eye contact. I all of a sudden really struggled with eye contact and I realized, okay, I just hadn't had a lot of practice because I'm on Zoom calls, you know, you can fake it. Um, you don't really have eye contact. Uh, and there's very few encounters with people I don't know very well where I would talk um, in person uh, during 2020. So I was like, okay, I'm clearly losing my practice, but why do I struggle so much with it? So I started researching and um, eventually landed at autism as a potential explanation. Um, and it wasn't until I saw the film Greta about Greta Thunberg um, and I saw myself in her, just the way she carried herself, the way she spoke about certain things. Um, she talked about her experiences being what it was like being uh, in high school and being considered not cool and um, being kind of always on the outside looking in. And I could relate to all of that. It was like going down a checklist. Um, and that's when I really started looking into it and, you know, doing tests um, online to figure it out uh, and got a fairly clear self-diagnosis of so, yep, definitely on the spectrum. Um, and it was the first time that my life made sense. And I know a lot of people say that who, who di get diagnosed or self-diagnosed because I always felt I struggled for no reason. And that is very um, kind of difficult to talk about because I would say in a lot of ways, I was extremely privileged. I went to a really good school. I was always great at school, so I didn't have any of the struggles that um, I often typical for people with autism. I was great at school, left school. Um, the structure of it really helped me, I think. Um, loved the arts so i was definitely a kind of kid where i think like i could touch anything and i was good at it <laughs> didn't make me many friends i would say um and i so i was always a bit envied i guess but i just suffered from being on the outside all the time like i felt excluded from everything i didn't really understand the social rules that well so i spent a lot of i offended a lot of people when i was really little and then decided okay this is not working so i just basically didn't say much most of middle school and I would say you know most of high school too so I just kept to myself and just felt lonely like horribly lonely and I could never figure out why that was and what was wrong um but I was not I know again that's different for different people um I think there's a kind of a um stereotype that autistic people are not very empathetic and I'm maybe not very emotional I'm definitely <laughs> the emotional type so I struggled from that um feeling of exclusion and and every just everything just felt hard like everything was anxiety inducing scary um the external world was very hard to keep track of I had trouble orienting myself so I wouldn't want to go out by myself much until I was you know 18 19 when I finally mastered that a bit so I always felt in that sense like I was a couple of years behind my peers which also made me even more uncool as you can imagine <laughs> um and I I always thought how weird it was that I was so um, capable on the one hand side and then struggled with those more social things so much. Um, and I think I could, because I was fairly quiet, like I kind of sailed through. I wasn't a problem child to anyone, um, but maybe in a way that made it worse because it was all inside, right? Um, it wasn't something that uh, came out much. I just dealt with it quietly. <laughs> But it definitely imbued me with a sense of I wasn't good enough, there was something wrong with me. And then that, over the course of my 20s, 
started coming out much more because that's when I started getting into relationships and having a horrible, horrible at times, uh, you know, um, sense of whether someone was good for me or not, because I was just glad that someone was interested in me. Um, so I would sell myself way too low um, and put up with, you know, bad things at times um, and somehow thought that was okay. And and at the same time, once I started working, I also realized, okay, I don't understand a lot of the power structures in work. Like that's not something that I'm wired to really understand. Uh, so I couldn't, I was always focused on just doing my job as well as I could. And I thought that's all it takes. So understanding that, no, actually what I told you earlier, the buddy buddy thing is important to get, uh, you know, ahead. Um, I didn't know that. And um, I had to learn it the hard way. And I think it really slowed things down for me, honestly, because it took me years to figure out um, that whether I wanted to network or not, I had to go and do it. Um, it's not just, you know, sufficient to do a really good job. You actually have to put yourself out there. And, and those are the things I really struggled with. Um, those are the things that were extremely draining to me and uh, scary. <laughs> and I wasn't very good at them. So I would go and then not get much out of it and think, okay, I'm wasting my time here. Um, and I could never understand why. And the when you don't have a sense why, like you very easily arrive at explanation. People just don't like me. Um, and that made me a bit of a you know people pleaser for a while in my relationships with men, but also in my work relationships. So I became a bit of a doormat, I would say. Um, it was easy for people to walk over me. Um, but I'm not the kind of person who just takes that. It was, it would make me very angry, but again, the anger was inside. Um, so it, it led to pretty dark places at times. Um, and I was very, yeah, impatient and just frustrated that my career wasn't going where I wanted it to go and my relationships weren't going where I wanted them to go. And, and it's strange when you come from a story of being the, you know, Wunderkind in uh, in high school that's capable of everything, and all of a sudden, you get to adult life, and it's it's way harder, and it's not working as well. So I really felt like I was on a downward slide from where I had been. I didn't understand why, and it wasn't until I got the I found a diagnosis that everything all of a sudden started to make sense. <laughs> uh, so it was it was a very crazy experience, um, very positive experience at that point. You know, thanks to people like Greta Thunberg and Elon Musk and and such, I think the our understanding of autism had shifted quite a bit, and um, yeah, can be regarded as disability in certain regards, and then a superpower in other regards, which is which is how I see it now. Um, yeah, I think that kind of gives a good introduction. I could keep talking, but <laughs> I talk too much. So <laughs> thank you so much for sharing and then being brave and then really. Um explaining what was it like to grow up um and then how how did it make sense for you to get self-diagnosed now i have a question for you did your parents say something or notice something like you know, when you're growing up and they mentioned something about like autism or like anything it came up once um there was there was a talk about maybe having asperger's which is what people still called it at the time and uh, it was dismissed i think partially because i did really well in school and and once I had a certain structure, I also did okay in social settings. Um, I just needed a bit of encouragement because, <laughs> again, I was very confused. Um, but once social settings were organized around a task of some sort, then it was like a game or in school, schoolwork, you know, that really made it easier for me. 
Um, so I think I, I did okay. And, um, pretty quickly and yeah my parents didn't look further into it it's also my mom especially doesn't really believe in labels that much and i think there was definitely thought of that kind of thing can be very limiting uh which is it can and i think these days people are very eager to embrace labels for themselves and i would always caution a little bit like this is also something i don't you know talk about it which is anyone and i haven't been very public about it yet because i'm still exploring how to navigate that in a way that's constructive and it isn't going to be used against me, <laughs> which is a bit of a tightrope uh, to navigate. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that um, on my podcast. And then I'm sure there are a lot of people who have gone through this um, very issue. And this episode definitely can inspire some other people and then understand bringing awareness and then bringing um this conversation to the light. And I really appreciate you being brave and then being very honest with me on this podcast. And how, um, I, I know it's just, um, you mentioned about superpower and I've heard of this, like, you know, I actually wanted to share with you that I was actually assigned one summer to be a music teacher for a summer camp for kids with autism when so many different levels. Um, and it was very challenging because I didn't really understand what autism was and then I didn't understand the level, like a different level. And then there's so much levels and, you know, one is like definitely um, difficult to handle. And then one was the calmer. So, and then it's like hard to guess through some of the music things that I needed to teach. So I had to kind of come up with like maybe colors and then a different ways to teach than traditional teaching. So it was kind of challenging for me, but it was a really great learning experience. Now, um, would you say that this challenges that you had and they didn't understand had you had diagnosis earlier, do you think it would have been better or maybe not better? <clears throat> yeah, I think about that sometimes. Um, I think the way it worked out for me, it was perfect. Um, I would say I was very lucky because my mom was always extremely understanding of all my needs, whatever they might be. Like I was extremely scared of sound uh, or other kids <laughs> for a while I think for the same reason because they were too loud for me um I liked I preferred adults who were calmer um and and she wasn't the kind of person who'd be like but just try but just she'd be like nope okay you don't want this all right and she would be encouraging and you know like try to get me out of my comfort zone too but she wouldn't push it she kind of knew when to just be like all right she needs this right now um so she would always believe me and uh, not question my perceptions which I think is just the biggest thing you can ask for <laughs> and and in that sense then you don't really need the label because you're being listened to um i think oftentimes we need the label because we need to have you know help others understand what's going on with us but if you have someone who listens to idiosyncrasies then you don't really need that um and the school i went to worked in a similar way i went to a steiner school or some people might know it as a waldorf school and at is a very uh, holistic school, holistic approach in that you don't just do academic work, you do a lot of artistic work. We did gardening, we did stonework, we did learn how to sew, like it was a very yeah, holistic in that sense. But they also focus a lot on the individual and they have very much similar to Montessori in a way where 
you're not being pushed to achieve certain things by a certain age. They believe like every kid, you know, develops along their own trajectory and they will get there. And so they give you more individual support. Um, I think that environment, also there's no grades. We didn't have grades until we were in ninth, <laughs> ninth grade. So uh, it's a lot more, learning's a lot more fun in that way, uh, a lot more explorative. And, um, and I think that was an absolute godsend. And my mom sought that out. She just had a sense that, I needed something like that. So she was very, very tuned in, still is. <laughs> um, and that made all the difference. And because of that, I didn't need a label. And I think it wasn't until I started, you know, to struggle. And, and again, I never struggled in the sense that it was very obvious to others. It was just obvious to me when I would wake up, you know, crying or sleep until noon because I felt so exhausted and I didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, things like that, where I was like, oh, I'm just not really that I'm not cut out for life. Like that was a feeling often. Um, and I was like, what am I doing wrong? Um, that's when searching for the label became helpful. Um, but until then, I think it was much better not to have it in my case. And again, my case, <laughs> different for everyone. Um, because it made me push myself um, and think, okay, others can do this. I can do this. Um, and I think I, there's lots of things I wouldn't trusted myself to become a filmmaker and just take that huge risk of a career um i probably would have never left germany and traveled around the world <laughs> which is what got me to leave in the first place um and open up my mind to the idea of living abroad and moving abroad um yeah i think the label would have held me back because uh, i can be quite quite a scaredy cat <laughs> sometimes <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So let's actually move on to the second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome this. I know you kind of mentioned about like self-diagnosis and then maybe looking at other role models or different people in, uh, in the past and stuff or in the present. Uh, so what are the most helpful tools that you use to overcome these challenges? Yeah, I mean, I just mentioned a few of them. I think being surrounded by people who actually really listen and believe you is the biggest, the biggest help the biggest gift um, and the biggest tool. <laughs> um, without that, it's, it's very hard. Um, but in terms of more recently, the tools I used, yeah, I self-diagnosed. Um, I attempted to get a formal diagnosis, which uh, is, is a long topic, but did not end up working out. Um, it's very hard to get. Also, when you're a woman, you still fall through the cracks of uh, those uh, kind of outdated clinical <laughs> diagnoses. Um, because it designed for 13 year old guys, <laughs> white guys at that. Um, so a lot of the things that are being tested for, um, you know, don't capture someone like me. And uh, interestingly enough, the tools that are available for free online are a lot more thorough, <laughs> which is not what you'd expect. Um, and I actually used Instagram quite a lot. As much as I'm critical of social media, I found a lot of valuable information there because there are um, quite a few people who are very outspoken about um that specific case of a late diagnosis and being a woman who gets diagnosed and being someone who easily uh falls through the cracks because it's not very apparent um that they have autism and just describing so many things that i could relate to and it was really a feeling of wow i'm not the only one <laughs> um there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not making this up. That, that I think was huge because for the longest time I was just telling myself I'm just weak. I'm just lazy. Um, people would always be like, why are you so hard on yourself? I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm letting myself down every day. Um, and yeah, having 
seeing other people's experiences um, described in a way that felt so intimate and experiencing that for the first time of like, wow, okay, they understand exactly what I've gone through. Um, that was incredibly helpful. Um, and since then, yeah, I really found I've been a lot more patient with myself, a lot more accepting. I can plan for certain things knowing, okay, this will probably do that to me and I will need a quiet day after that. And that's okay. I don't need to be on 24 seven, you know, in our industry, obviously there's also kind of a bit of a expectation that you're always on and you're always hustling. And, um, so knowing when to take some time out, um, is something I learned and yeah, I learned it the hard way too. I had two near burnouts when I was in LA. Um, but again, back then I didn't know yet <laughs> where those were coming from. And, and in the industry, people kind of shrugged that off. So like, oh yeah, you know, everyone like kind of hits a wall at some point. Um, but no, it's a little different in my case. Um, I have to take care of, of my mind and body in a way that others maybe don't. Um, and yeah, Instagram was a helpful tool. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's a very interesting topic. And then I really appreciate you being brave and then being vulnerable to open up um, during our podcast. So my last question is a gift that came from the adversity. So would you share with our audience what's the gift that you can say that came from your adversity? Yeah, um, I would say there are lots, but the one that I'm think about most often these days is probably just the ability to be uncomfortable um, and sit in that, um, which I think is hard. It's always hard. <laughs> we don't want to do that, right? We want to escape discomfort. But having been a fish out of water for so long, you kind of get desensitized a bit in a sense. Like you're just like, okay, this is out of my comfort zone, but I kind of have to do that every day. I'm out of my comfort zone a lot. So um, I'm just going to roll with it. And, and I really felt it when the pandemic struck because all of a sudden people were freaking out and I thought, eh, it's just another unpredictable day, you know, um, in a way, like nothing much changed for me because I'd always felt that the world didn't make much sense and was confusing. It could turn on me at any point. And all of a sudden everybody was feeling that. And that was weirdly empowering for me because I was like, oh, welcome to my reality, you know, um, but also I was able to just kind of fly through the pandemic very easily, even though. It was hard on me too. I haven't seen my mom in three years. She's in New Zealand and the borders closed and it was scary. And um, I lost my job, I was unemployed. I'm not a citizen. I'm not even a permanent resident. So I was like, well, I'm not sure, you know, how I'm going to make that work. And um, ended up improvising and literally selling masks on Etsy that I like was making myself uh, for a while just to have an income. Um, but I think, yeah, it makes me a little more crisis proof because everything feels like a crisis. Um, so you just learn how to deal with that. And it makes me really independent too, honestly, for the same reason, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. So that was all my questions, but um, at the end, I always ask my guests, if there's somebody who's struggling with the issue that you have been through, what do you think your advice is to those people? Um, I would say trust your feelings, like you know what you're feeling is true. I saw this thing at some point, I'm always a bit like, uh, I don't trust, <laughs> uh, you know, these overly positive uh, lines sometimes. But I saw a line at some point um, that was everything you're feeling is true. And I found how, how interesting, because I tell myself, I used to tell myself all the time that what I was feeling wasn't true. Um, and I would judge myself for what I was feeling. And um, 
I think in retrospect, it's like, no, everything I was feeling was true. There's a reason for it. And by acknowledging that it's true, you get to move through it a lot faster. If you if you hide from it, if you pretend it's not there, if you, you know, judge yourself for it, it's it's not going to go away. Um, so it's it's always good to acknowledge it. And um, sometimes we feel things that might be embarrassing, but I definitely was embarrassed that I felt lonely so much. Like it's not something, you know nice to admit because it feels so needy in a way um but yeah being able to really tune into what you're feeling taking that seriously and um basing your actions on that i think that would be my biggest advice well thank you so much again sarah for coming to a gift university tonight and i really value our time in the conversation and i'm sure this will be the same Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening and watching A Gift from Adversity. We'll see you next time.